0: Between the years of 1920 and 1925, there were a string of suspicious deaths happening in Osage County among the people of the Osage tribe. Spoiler alert, the mastermind and fall guy who was convicted and sent to prison was William Hale. And yet, years after the event, oftentimes referred to as the Reign of Terror, we are still uncovering how vast the conspiracy was and just how many people were involved. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. I had never heard of the Osage massacre as it is sometimes called, but if there is one thing that gets me riled up about our nation's past, it is the treatment of the First Nation, the Native Americans. And thanks to listener at Embracing Your ADD/ADHD on Facebook for recommending it, otherwise I might have never known. This episode research revealed racially motivated inheritance schemes, murder, oppression, And as the Guardian Ledger called it, quote, hints of a systematic murder campaign, end quote. Don't click away. This is not an episode of government bashing. The bureau that actually keeps the government in line got its early beginnings due to this case. You may be more familiar with their initials, the FBI. Yep, a very young J. Edgar Hoover had a vision, and his vision had to start right here. The Bureau had gotten reports about some of the goings-on, but this was still at the time when the Native Americans were still considered barely human, much less necessitating valuable resources. He didn't want to take the whole mess on. And when you pull back to see things with a wider lens, it is a mess. But in order for Hoover to establish a group that was above conspiracy, above bribery, above corruption— They had to address the issue at hand, flaunting all of those things. I digress. Let's go back and meet the Osage. They called themselves the Children of the Middle Water, and that's where you could find them. In the Midwest, staying close to and trading along the Ohio and Mississippi Rivers, they were a strong band, and they had spread out and controlled what we know of today as Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas and Oklahoma. Like many, well, all the other Indian tribes, they too were being pushed from their homes. For some time, they pulled back and pulled back, not wanting confrontation. But finally, they decided that since they knew they were going to get pushed again, and that the U.S. did not hold up to any of their treaties thus far, they did something none of the other tribes had done. They bought their own land. The Osage was one of the last tribes forced to the Oklahoma Territory and had gained the wisdom of watching what happened to every other tribe before them. The story goes that they had found a piece of land that was rocky and dusty and decided that since it was terrible for farming, maybe here, they would be left alone. In 1872, they purchased 1.5 million acres in northeast Oklahoma. By this time, the government wanted all tribes that had been moved to Oklahoma to start dividing up their property into individual units, allotments. They were forcing the Osage to give up their communal ways in order to create private property. For the other tribes, this allowed the government to sell off the extra land. Also, this was just prior to making Oklahoma into a state, and apparently, in order for that to happen, all the land had to be owned. However, since the Osage purchased their land outright, they didn't have to fall under the Dawes Act of 1887, but still had to come under a treaty. So, their chief during this arrangement was Chief James Bigcart, and he added a few conditions to this treaty. There were, at the time, only 2,229 registered Osage. In other treaties, each person was allowed 160 acres. This was how there was some left over. But the Osage required that all their purchased land be divided equally, coming out to about 660 acres each. And then, this was key, they reserved their mineral rights. This meant that they kept the right to keep whatever they mined from the ground rocks, oil, gas, minerals, and finally, they kept a clause that said the mineral rights would remain communal, meaning the minerals belonged to everyone, dividing everything equally forever. So if gold was discovered only on one person's 600 plus acres, it would still be shared with everyone. This was considered a head right, and it would be passed down from generation to generation. Now, either the Osage were really savvy, or super lucky, because I think it was as early as 1897 they found a trickle of oil. Not a lot, but enough that was worth coming out and setting up a drill. The Osage started receiving monthly dividends for the purchase of the oil. They literally were rich. Coming from poverty, nothing but rocky ground to live on, and losing thousands of their people over the last few decades, they finally struck. Uh, Well, oil. At first, the rest of the people thought it was cute. Oh, look at the Indians buying cars, buying mansions, hiring white servants. But then, the oil struck big, and by 1923, as David Grand explains in his book Killers of the Flower Moon, quote, the tribe took in more than 30 million dollars The equivalent today of more than 400 million dollars. It wasn't cute anymore. The white community and the government were not happy about it. Almost as instantly as the oil being purged from the ground, money was purged from the Osage. It started with simple tactics, like they were charged more for items at a grocery store all the way up to Congress that felt they needed to step in for the sake of the Osage's well-being. They believed the Indian nation would not be able to understand how to manage their newfound wealth, so in 1921, they required that the Osage had white guardians. These were people appointed to each member of the tribe to manage their finances the Osage were told that it was a temporary arrangement until they were able to show that they could handle things on their own. I don't know how they chose who could become a guardian, or what qualifications they had to have, or even who they needed to answer to, but it seemed they were politicians, bankers, lawyers, who quickly filled up the roles. The politicians portrayed the Osage as nothing more than, quote, children who couldn't handle their money end quote. "this quickly turned into the largest federally and state sanctioned criminal enterprise against one people many of the guardians turned around and swindled hundreds to hundreds of thousands away from the very people they were hired to protect and what's worse is that the whole thing was perfectly legal because it was a law passed by congress but wait There's more. This is where the greed really comes in. They weren't happy with just skimming off the top or overcharging. They wanted the head rights. I'll be right back. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin if you haven't already tried the body wash consider using the bag of bones link in the show notes to give it a try it has a money back guarantee and free shipping with any order of 25 dollars or more plus you help support an awesome podcast Hint, hint if you know you stink or you take showers regularly this product is for you give it a try today click the link in the show notes Don't think it went unnoticed that there was suddenly an increase in mysterious deaths of the Osage people and a spike in reported murders. But no one did anything about them. There were no investigations. There were no resolutions. And if you pull back to a wider view, many deaths were happening within the same families. The Osage people were targets. At this point in time, the head rights were able to be passed on from family member to family member, whether they were Osage or not. And just around this same time, there were a lot of intermarriages going on. For example, Charles Whitehorn was full-blooded Osage, and he was married to Hattie, who was half Cheyenne and half white. He went missing on May 14th, 1921. It took two weeks for his body to be found, and it turns out he was shot twice in the head. Hattie later married a white man named Leroy Smitherman. It's believed that either he committed or they both orchestrated the murder to be able to claim his headright through his wife, who would now inherit it from her husband. No investigation would ever be done. This kind of thing was happening all over town, and people looked the other way. It was in nineteen twenty one Anna Brown went missing. Her mother and sisters were frantic with worry. Her mother, Lizzie Q, had four daughters. Anna, of course, then there's Molly, who was married to Ernest Burkhart, a white dude, Rita, who was married to Bill Smith, an Osage dude, and the fourth who was named Minnie. Minnie had died only three years prior of unusual symptoms. She was only 27, no children, in good health. Her doctors described the cause of her death as, quote, a peculiar wasting illness, end quote. In the meantime, Lizzie, the mom, is already feeling sickly, and it's looking a lot like a peculiar wasting illness. You with me? On May 27th, Anna's body was found in a creek. The death was ruled as accidental because they claimed she died of alcohol poisoning. Last I heard, a symptom of alcohol poisoning is not a gunshot wound in the back of the head. Side note, the bullet, by the way, did not exit the skull, but when an autopsy was done, no bullet was found. But no one was talking about that. Her head rights passed to her mother since Anna had been divorced. Lizzie Q died in July, dividing the head rights between the two remaining daughters, Molly and Rita. In 1922, the mysterious deaths continued to add up. When the Osage members sought outside assistance to discover the cause, one man stepped up, Barney McBride. He was a wealthy oilman and managed to do a bit of investigating. He found enough things that he believed would necessitate a federal trial, and he himself traveled to Washington, D.C. to have his findings heard. He never made it. On the evening before he was meant to meet the powers that be, he stepped from a club after an evening of playing billiards when someone tied a burlap sack over his head and stabbed him more than 20 times. At the cost of this poor man's life, the Osage finally got national recognition when the Washington Post printed, quote, conspiracy believed to kill rich Indians, end quote. But it wasn't until February of 1923 that people started to take things seriously. The body of Henry Roan, one of the elders in the Osage, was found murdered. With Roan's death, a blanket of fear was suffocating the tribe. Their nightmares could no longer be explained away. And one of the more outspoken members of the Osage was Bill Smith, Rita's husband. He was incensed by the lack of attention the obvious murders were getting and demanded that culprits be tracked down and justice be served. He spoke out at council meetings, and he had a pretty good idea where to start pointing the finger. But even he wouldn't say the name out loud. That was a death sentence for sure. On March 9th, in the early hours of morning, an explosion shook the town of Fairfax. The Smith home was blown to shreds. Rita Smith and their servant, 17-year-old Nettie, died instantly. Bill Smith died in the hospital four days later. The tribal chiefs decided, maybe it was time. They sent a letter to the Department of Justice to help them in, quote, capturing and prosecuting the murderers of the members of the osage tribe" end quote. the government moves slowly but others begin to build a case as best they could but it was futile a lawyer named vaughn was compiling information for a formal case a message reached him that an osage member named george bighart had valuable information about many of the recent murders He was currently in a hospital in Oklahoma City, dying. The diagnosis? Poison. George Bighart was Chief James Bighart's son. George is the last hereditary Osage Chief. Vaughn raced to Oklahoma City as Bighart said he was the only one that could be trusted to impart this information to. Bigheart died while Vaughn was at his bedside. Vaughn telephoned the sheriff of the Osage County to report that he had, quote, critically important information about the series of Osage killings, end quote, and was leaving on the first train. He never made it. Vaughn's body was discovered along the tracks. His neck was broken. He had been thrown from the train. His papers and luggage, gone. His private papers, gone. His security box, empty. His wife and ten children were left nothing. And this is where I tell you that just prior to all of this, George Bigheart's neighbor was none other than William Hale. And wait for it, Hale was just signed by the courts to be Bigheart's guardian. It sounds like a movie, right? It has all the components of a great thriller. But I promise you this is not made up. And what's worse, there is so much more to this story. Hang on just a sec. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! In 1925, the pleas from the Osage were finally addressed. A 30-year-old J. Edgar Hoover with dreams of creating the uppermost, impenetrable, incorruptible Bureau for Justice came onto the scene. Hoover assigned Tom White, who was managing the Baby Bureau in Houston, Texas, to take the lead. Even with the rash of unexplained deaths and obvious murders to those who had vital information about the case, Tom White accepted and moved his family to Oklahoma City and got started familiarizing himself with the details. He decided to go after the individual case that he felt they could get a conviction on. For starters, he began with the murder of Anna Brown. They soon discovered that Anna's death and Henry Rohn's death would do quite a bit of overlapping. The investigation built from here and all roads led to William Hale. William Hale, originally from Texas, was the self-proclaimed King of the Osage Hills. He was a very rich man. He was a banker, a businessman, a rancher, he even acted as a reserve deputy, and he was extremely political. What I feel is necessary to explain about the character of Uncle Bill Hale is that he wanted everyone to believe that he was a friend to everyone. The Osage felt they could trust him. He was a neighbor. He had money. He was hiring a lot of people, buying drinks, always wore a nice suit, smiled, and shook hands with everyone. He would give loans, be a pallbearer, and be just someone who could be in charge. So, when the body of Anna Brown was found, Hale was one of the first to rally a cry to the citizens that, quote, we've got to stop this bloody business, end quote. And he offered up his own rewards for leads in the case, and provided his own private investigator. However, I mean, you had to know there was going to be a however, right? However, the private investigator hired by Hale was later arrested for a robbery in nearby Tulsa. Upon his arrests, White and his team used this opportunity to question him. Turns out, he claims that he was actually hired by Hale not to find evidence, but instead to plant it. He told them that he was to, quote, shape an alibi for quote-unquote witnesses who would be willing to lie. It turns out there were a lot of people willing to do just that, but more on that later. He also shared that in addition to answering to Hale and saying that Hale was the mastermind behind the plan, that Burkhart brothers were also at the meetings. To refresh your memory, Molly, the last surviving daughter of Lizzie, is married to Ernest Burkhart. Brian Burkhart, his brother, was the last person to be seen with Anna Brown while she was still alive. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm smelling conspiracy. Add on to that, White discovered that Hale took out a $25,000 life insurance policy on Henry Roan, which he cashed out pretty darn quick after Roan's body was found. Back then, the only way to get a life insurance policy on anyone was if a doctor signed off on it. Now, Henry Roan was known to be an alcoholic, so I doubt many doctors would want to sign that document. But do you know who did? The same doctor that somehow didn't see a bullet hole in the back of Anna Brown's head? Dr. James Shone. A web... Of deceit was spreading outward, White also found out that William Hale had initially tried to purchase Rome's headright, but luckily or not, I don't know, the laws interceded with the sale and then famous trials dot com wrote quote, White also began to piece together a thread linking the Brown and Smith murders with Anna unwed and without children being the first victim. Her headright passed to her still living mother, Lizzie. Then Lizzie's death, probably through poisoning, meant that her headright passed to her two surviving daughters, Rita and Molly. If Rita and Bill were to be killed simultaneously, as they were in the explosion, the headrights for them would pass entirely to the last remaining sister, Molly. And Molly, of course, was married to Ernest Burkhart. Who also happened to be William Hale's nephew? White wondered whether Ernest's marriage to Molly in 1919 might actually have been the first step in a long and murderous plot. Interestingly enough, Molly began to feel sick, and so her loving husband took her to the doctor. Come on, you know who it is, say it with me Dr. Schoen. She later confided in a priest that she felt that someone was trying to kill her. Tom White swooped in and took her to a hospital out of town. She told the hospital staff there that she had been feeling poorly and her home doctor prescribed regular insulin shots. Curiouser and curiouser, when she stopped receiving the shots from Dr. Schoen and was taken out from under the supervision of William Hale and her own husband, Ernest Burkhart, she began to recover. Did I mention that Hale is Burkhart's uncle? An agent wrote in his report quote, It is an established fact that when she was removed from the control of Hale and Burkhart, she immediately regained her health. End quote. It was time to take action. Tom White and his team issued warrants on January 4, 1926 for the arrest of William Hale and Ernest Burkhart for the murders of Bill and Rita Smith and their servant, Nettie Brookshire. When White's team went to question Hale, a quote from Gran in the book reads, The calm and confident Hale was entirely unperturbed by the mounting evidence against him and refused to yield anything to the investigators. He simply told them that he was prepared to have his day in court and fight the charges. Lucky for investigator Tom White, the case was going to state court." End quote. Burkhart, on the other hand, spilled his guts. He named names, he told plots, he detailed the places, all the things. White's team went after the people he accused to question each one of them one at a time. The soup man, The one who created the bomb that was used on the Smith House, Asa Kirby, it turned out, had been abruptly killed, so he couldn't help. Henry Grammer was also named as one of Hale's regulars. He was more than happy to take on whatever task Hale had to offer. But when it came time to seek him out for questioning, he was nowhere to be found. Eventually, it was discovered that he too was murdered. John Ramsey, who was identified as the trigger man for quote, a little job Hale wanted done, end quote, which was to kill Henry Roan. When they tracked him down, he was happy to spill the beans also. He gave explicit details on completing the job quote, When the Indian got in his car to leave, I shot him in the back of the head, then added, White people in Oklahoma thought no more of killing an Indian than they did in seventeen twenty four Hale had no limit to henchmen. He was also present for many of the other plots Hale wanted carried out, and he was most likely party to some of them, but was not charged. He was arrested for the murder of Henry Roan Kelsey Morrison admitted to the killing of Anna Brown. He was the third man seen with her on her last night alive. Kelsey also gave up Brian Burkhart and his wife as conspirators. Morrison said that he was asked to commit other crimes and was paid handsomely, but he declined. One of them, I can't can't remember which one, they said, Something along the lines of, I guess it's my neck on the line now. Sharpen your pencils, boys. The Bureau of Investigations now had a lovely collection of characters to usher into the state court system. They were really hoping for a federal court since William Hale had such reach, but they would take what they can get. I will not bore you with all the he said she said about the several trials that occurred between January of 1926 and of 1929, but if that's your jam, I highly recommend reading the court trial documents. It's entertaining to say the least, but I'm sure you'll receive the information much the same way that I did, and just shake your head. It's ridiculous the amount of shenanigans that was allowed to go on. Every single person that I mentioned that talked, unquestioned, I might add, which meant they weren't prompted, they just said what they wanted for the most part. They all changed their mind when it came time to sit beside the judge and testify. But there was so much ridiculousness bribed witnesses, bribed jurors, drunk witnesses, witnesses changing their pleas, changing their stories, denouncing their written confessions, saying that they were beaten into submission, and even witnesses ended up being killed. And the defense attorney, Jim Springer, was the ringleader in this three-ring circus. He used dramatics and badgering, slipped bribes to the jury and threats to the witnesses to change their stories. He used every trick in the book. He, he even packed the courthouse with Hale supporters and instructed them to cheer for every motion made by the defense and boo and hiss at the prosecution. The hearings were a spectacle, and the newspapers ate it up. The Tulsa Tribune would write, quote, Seldom, if ever, has such a crowd been gathered in a courtroom before, end quote. The New York Times would blast, quote, Courts end Osage Indian reign of terror, murder, and sudden death have broken tribal peace since oil was discovered on Oklahoma Reservation, white men indicted for the killings, end quote. On January 5th, the Times read, quote, At Guthrie, a federal grand jury was paneled to sift from a maze of rumors the facts that will reveal either as a reality or a myth a gigantic conspiracy to remove by death an entire family with a $2 million fortune at the stage, end quote. And quote. At the first trial, Ramsey confessed that he shot Roan at the behest of Hale, Who was to pay him $500 and give him an automobile? Ramsey then repudiated the confession, asserting duress, which government agents denied. The Wausau Daily Herald reports The dark cloak of mystery and dread that covered the oil bespattered valleys of the Osage Hills for four long years is rising at last, unveiling to public view details of chains of murders so startling that they seem hardly credible, end quote. A circus, I tell you. On June 8th, during the trial of Ernest Burkhart, in which he confessed, then recanted his testimony, was set to testify for the prosecution, and then switched to the defense. Why, you may ask? The worst. His four-year-old with Molly Burkhart suddenly died of mysterious circumstances. When he was escorted back to his jail cell, he slipped a note to the guard requesting a secret meeting with the prosecutor, John Leahy. At the meeting, it's documented that he said, quote, I'm through lying, end quote, and that he didn't want to go on with the trial any longer. He was worried that Hale would have him killed. On the next day at the trial, Ernest Burkhart was escorted to the judge's bench and requested to speak with him. Moments later, he turned to the courtroom that was jam-packed with spectators and announced, quote, I wish to discharge the defense attorneys. Mr. Flint Moss will now represent me, end quote. Mr. Moss then stood up and announced that Burkhart was changing his plea from not guilty to guilty. Ernest Burkhart was able to address the courtroom and the jury, and he confessed. He told everyone that he acted as a messenger passing on Hale's directives. He told them at no time was he under any kind of physical abuse by the government that was a lie. He said the only duress he felt by the federal agents was being questioned long into the night. On June twenty-first, 1926, Ernest Burkhart was sentenced to life in prison. But his testimonies would put a dent in the defense's, um, well, defense. On July 26, the trials continued for William Hale and John Ramsey for the murder of Henry Roan. The prosecution's star witness, Ernest Burkhart. He told the jury that Hale had been planning to kill Roan for years. He was going to use poisoned moonshine, quote, a method he had employed before with success, end quote, he also testified that his uncle had become agitated when he found out that Ramsey had shot Roan in the back of the head. His instructions were to make it look like a suicide, get Roan drunk, shoot him on the front of the head, and then drop the gun by his side. He claims his uncle told him, quote, If only he'd follow instructions, nobody would have known. End quote. When Hale was able to testify, he said, quote, I never devised a scheme to have Roan killed. I never desired his death. But this is also the same man that said a federal agent cocked a pistol behind his head, and when he turned to look, they threw a black cover over him and attached a metal mask threatening to electrocute him. Or some such nonsense. Trial records would say Prosecutor Roy St. Louis told jurors that the evidence proved that the richest tribe of Indians on the globe has become the illegitimate prey of white men, and the worst predator of all has been the defendant, the ruthless freebooter of death. In a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, Tom White touches on some of the nonsense they've had to wrangle in trying to provide an honest case. He writes, quote, In trying this case in the state courts at Pawhuska, we met every conceivable means of opposition. We succeeded in offsetting the most of it and were able to get a case against two parties of Bill Hale's gang and they were arrested for interfering with witnesses and both released on a five thousand dollar bond. It was necessary that we guard most of our witnesses and keep them from being harmed personally or interfered with otherwise by Bill Hale's faction. End quote. The Wausau Daily Herald would write quote, The story of the murderers is complicated, a series of mysteries within mysteries. Through it, dimly seen but visible with ominous portent, moves the figure of bluff, hard boiled William K. Hale, who is under indictment for first degree murder and who the federal government charges sought by wiping out a whole clan to make himself a millionaire many times over, quote. And through it all, Hale maintained his innocence. In January of 1929, Hale was convicted, and in a separate trial, Ramsey was convicted in October of the same year. I'll let the New York Times have the final say. On October 30th, they printed, quote, King of Osage Hills, guilty of murder. Life sentences are given. William K. Hale, known as the King of Osage Hills, and John Ramsey, a cowboy farmer, were found guilty by a jury in federal court on the charge of slaying Henry Roan, an Osage who was shot to death, the government charged, so that Hale could collect the $25,000 insurance which he carried on the Indian's life. The jury imposed life sentences, end quote. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety, and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything, DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety, and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. David Gran, author of the best-selling novel, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI, is probably most noted for bringing this story to light. His breadth of study and research unearthed many clues that had been tucked away for almost a hundred years. While it's true that once Hale was sentenced to prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, the murders stopped, but prior to the trials, what the outside world may have never realized was how far spread the fingers of conspiracy would reach. There were so many deaths that were not investigated. So many murders that have gone unsolved. So many conspirators who helped pull off the largest racial systematic murder campaign have gotten away scot-free. Their hands are covered in blood and their bank accounts padded with dirty money. And they were never even implicated. Bankers, doctors, traders, undertakers, lawyers, wealthy ranchers, and even lawmen. David Grand spent years digging through archives and followed this conspiratorial spiderweb had the Bureau kept going. He says, quote, When I began researching this story, I thought of it as a traditional mystery, a who-done-it. and by the end I realized this wasn't a who-done-it. This was a who didn't do it, meaning so many people were a part of this, the whole town, the white part of town. Was complicit. End quote. On the top of his list, the doctors, James Shone and his brother David. It's believed that the brothers may not have been spearheading anything and may have just been getting a percentage or a direct payment, but they prescribed medicine that was actually poison. We talked about giving vaccinations and insulin, which was actually poison. They aided in covering up evidence and looked the other way in the pile of deaths that now accumulated in the most unusual of ways. How many? How many innocent people was this applied to? We are taught to trust what the doctor tells us, and that made things quite easy for them. The Osage didn't question. They just did what the good doctor said was best for them. Tom White, in his investigations, would note that he felt the doctors were some of the last to see Bill Smith alive. Grant supports that, writing, quote, During the meeting, James Schoen was named the administrator of Rita Smith's estate and was allowed to execute her will, a position which paid unconscionably high fees and provided ample opportunities for graft. It becomes clear that the doctors summoned the lawyer to Bill's bedside so that they could all but force him to sign the necessary paperwork before he died. And when White interviews the nurse who had been on duty when Bill Smith was in the hospital for the few days after the explosion, he wanted to know if anyone had seen him or if he said anything about who he thought would have planned the explosion. She would tell White that the two doctors and his lawyer came to see him and that later, Bill Smith had mentioned he only had two enemies in the world William K. Hale and Ernest Burkhart. There's also a bank president named Herbert G. Burt. He was good friends with Hale and was known for charging quote astronomical interest rates, end quote. Grant believes that Burt had a hand in the George Bighart poisoning and the death of W. W. Vaughan that was the guy that was thrown off of the train, it would take someone to go on the inside to be able to clear out a person's safety deposit box. And maybe some people didn't have a direct hand in the actual murders taking place, but they didn't do anything about it either. Look the other way, and the worst were the police force that were there to serve and protect the people. Grant says, for example, quote, At the time of Anna's murder, Osage County Sheriff was a 58-year-old, 300-pound frontiersman named Harve M. Fries, who, according to rumor, was cozy with criminal elements. Fries allegedly granted not just leniency, but free rein to gamblers and bootleggers in the area, end quote. There were many who could have been prosecuted, Grand believes. He writes, quote, The evil of Hale was not an anomaly far from the Bureau's official estimate of 24 murders, Grand notes that scholars and investigators now believe the Osage death toll was in the scores, if not the hundreds, end quote. Most of the victims died of poisons, blaming it on sickness or alcohol addictions or injections of massive amounts of morphine to those the gang had gotten drunk, making it look simply as another alcohol poisoning. When Tom White began unraveling the flow of oil money from the Osage headrights and discovered, quote, layer upon layer of corruption and evidence of multiple white guardians and administrators using the system to swindle and cheat the very people they were supposed to be protecting, the names in the little black ledger began to add up. One Osage chief referring to the guardianship over Osage estates estimated that millions of dollars were stolen and spent by guardians of Osage estates. The guardians and administrators were often wealthy, prominent businessmen, ranchers, lawyers, politicians, while lawmen, prosecutors, and judges cover up and sometimes even facilitate the swindling for bribe money. These powerful men all have understandings with one another and select certain wealthy Indians as their prey. The depraved schemes often deprive Osage Indians not of just surplus wealth, but go so far as to leave many in abject poverty. The Osage are aware of the multi-leveled campaign against them, but powerless to stop it." End quote. In Grant's research, he found lists of guardians and the names under theirs as to who they were in charge of. There really was a little black ledger book he discovered that a large percentage of the Osage were dying. He mentioned that it was not uncommon for one person to be in charge of the estates of 12 to 14, and then 70% died? He believes, and I believe, that's a little bit high. He says, I opened up the book, and it had the name of the guardian, and underneath it, it had the name of the wards and next to many of the names of the wards, it simply said the word, dead. And then you go down to another Osage ward, and next to the name it said, dead. Dead. Skip a few more. Dead. 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 End quote. But with 100 years passing, many of the questions will go unanswered, and most will not be brought to judgment, and the stolen money will never be recovered. Grand writes, we are trapped in our limited knowledge in the events. It is not that the truth doesn't exist. It's just that we can't always see it all. I'd always thought that the horror of a crime is what you know, right? That when you write about a crime and you write about a racial injustice, the horror is what you know. But I also realize that, in fact, the greater horror may be what you don't know and what can no longer be accounted for." Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Aisle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com and we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. I found a few more tidbits of information that I thought you might be interested in to tie up a few loose ends. But for the most part, once the convictions were handed down, the people lost interest. The newspapers stopped writing about it, the rest of the guilty people, I'm sure, laid low, and life went on. Eventually, the oil wells began to dry up and the Osage tribe were no longer the wealthiest anything anymore. But I will say that they are the most creative with the care of their people. They got into the casino business and funded their tribe, and I believe it still is open for business today. Molly, the last surviving child of Lizzie Q, inherited the family's head rights. She divorced Ernest Burkhart during his trials, and I could find no mention of when, but I think it was when their child died. She remarried in 1928. And finally, in 1931, an earlier court order declaring Molly to be incompetent was reversed, and she became free to spend her money as she so wished. Molly died in 1937 at the age of 50. John Ramsey was originally sentenced to life but was paroled in 1947. Kelsey Morrison was already in jail for another crime when he was questioned. He got an additional sentence for life for the murder of Anna Brown. Brian Burkhart turned state's evidence, so was not tried for the crime. Ernest Burkhart paroled in 1937, but then he decided to rob a bank before being released again in 1959. He spent his last years in a trailer home with his brother Brian, and for some reason was given a full pardon from the governor of Oklahoma, Henry Belmont, in 1965. William Hale served 21 years in Leavenworth before, despite Osage protests, being paroled in 1947. He spent many of his prison years working on a pig farm. Oddly enough, Tom White became the warden of Leavenworth. While working as a warden, Tom White always insisted that Hale be treated just like any other prisoner. Before leaving jail, Hale wrote a letter in which he expressed the desire to return to Osage County, citing, quote, I'd rather live at Gray Horse than any place on earth, end quote. That was a big nope. As a condition of his parole, he was required to stay out of the state of Oklahoma. Hale died in a nursing home in Arizona in 1962 and was buried in Wichita, Kansas. Also in 1925, federal grant law finally prohibited non-Osage from inheriting the head rights of tribal members. They must possess more than one half Osage blood to be eligible. Grant said in an interview, quote, For me, one of the hardest things that I felt futile about, because so many of the witnesses were dead, so many of the suspects were dead, so many of the conspirators in so many of these cases covered up the crimes that in many of the cases you're not fully able to bring a resolution. I had always thought when I began this project is that history as a way to provide an accounting in which you record the voices of victims and you identify the perpetrators but that was not always possible, and the perpetrators in these cases, not only did they erase the lives of the victims, they also erased their history, and it's a secondary crime, but no less a nefarious crime, but I do hope over time that we'll get a bit more clues and evidence, end quote. He is ever hopeful that more evidence will turn up. Every day people find letters, ledgers, and notes that haven't seen the light of day for decades, or even centuries, so who knows? In the interviews I watched, and the research I dug up, the Osage never played the victim card. They are a very resourceful people, and even though much of their wealth and land had been taken away, they have always been able to come back. They take pride in their history, and teach it to the next generation to be sure the Osage Reign of Terror would not be possible again. They have the oldest tribally owned museum in the United States. Despite the court cases and the mismanagement of the Osage headrights by disingenuous guardians, the Department of Interior still manages the land trusts. They still pay their head rights, their dividends. In 2000, a lawsuit came against the Interior Department for mismanagement of trust assets resulting in losses and interest. In 2011, the government settled for $380 million, making it the largest trust settlement with one tribe in United States history. They also improved the management between the tribe head rights and the Department of Interior. On June 8, 2016, The Osage Nation finalized the purchase of a 43,000-acre ranch within the boundaries of its original reservation in Oklahoma. The tribe paid just over $47 million for the Blue Stem Ranch, which was the property owned by Ted Turner. This acquisition made the tribe one of the largest landowners in Osage County. Chief Standing Bear said in an interview, quote, I think during the event it occurred to me as I was signing the documents that Osage chiefs have been signing similar documents in the past, but they were always giving our land away or selling it for the wrong reasons. It was an honor on behalf of the Osage people to be signing to buy land. It's a complete reversal, and I'm so grateful to the Almighty for being able to carry that out for our people. That's how historic it is for me." Thank you for joining me for this week's episode, and again, thank you to listener Embracing Your ADD ADHD on Facebook. And that wraps up our listener requests for a bit. I have some exciting episodes lined up for you for the rest of the season, and I can't wait to record them for you. I don't know about you, but I am learning so much. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do me the favor of leaving a five-star rating and an awesome review to entice others to join us. The more the merrier, right? I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.